California Frontier Podcast, Episode 13. The California Frontier Podcast is dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. My name is Damian Bassage, and I'm your host. Today we have a very special guest. I'm interviewing Dr. Jonathan Alcantar, who is a professor of Spanish and Mexican-American studies at Northern Colorado University. But uh, I know Jonathan in particular because he was a student at San Jose State when I first arrived there as a new professor. Since then, he started his own academic career, and we're going to talk about something that he's been working on, which is the novel Ramona, this foundational novel from 1884 that really kicked off the interest in California's Spanish and Mexican past on behalf of Anglo-American residents of this country. And Jonathan in particular has been working on the the echoes of that novel throughout the hemisphere. So I think you're going to find this to be very interesting, not only for California history, but for the history of the Americas in general. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jonathan Alcantar. Hello, Jonathan. It's great to talk to you, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Well, Jonathan and I uh, know each other from our time together at San Jose State University, and and now he's... uh, Dr. Jonathan Alcantar at Northern Colorado University. So it's a real pleasure to to talk with you and to uh, to catch up. But uh, and we're going to talk about this Ramona by Helen Hunt Jackson and its impact on California and the the great work you've been doing on it and on her. So before we we talk about that directly, maybe you could tell tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you are, where you come from your interests? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Damien, Dr. Vasich for this. Damien. Uh, Damien. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I always, I, I always try to uh, remember my, my mentors and, and professors and colleagues. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate it. Appreciate the introduction. Um, well, uh, just a little bit of my, about my background. I grew up in... Um, I, grew, I grew up in Watsonville, California. I was born in Watsonville, California. And uh, my second half, I guess, of my life was uh, in the border. I grew up in Mexicali, uh, a border town uh, right across uh, Calexico, California. And when I was 16 years old, I relocated back to Watsonville. And that's how my entire journey started all over again in, uh, you know, in academia, I, I guess. Uh, then... Uh, as many as many students that go through the community college system, San Jose State was a great alternative to continue my studies. I didn't know what I wanted to study when I arrived to San Jose State. I was very confused as a first-generation college student. I was very fortunate to encounter uh, wonderful mentors in the Spanish department and also in the uh, Chicano Studies department um, my first year. Uh, and that's how I, my whole interest in Jose Martí started. Uh, one of my first classes was uh, 
it was Latin American literature, uh, 19th, I think it was late 19th century, beginning 20th century. And that's what one of the first essays that we read in that class was Our America or Nuestra America by Jose Mati, a, a wonderful essay that deals with the many issues that were affecting Latin America around that time. Uh, but it also has a very uh, promising, uh, hopeful message about how Latin America can come together and really resolve any, many, many of the issues that continue to affect the, the countries in Latin America. And uh, during that particular time, I was uh, also introduced to Ramona uh, as, a, as a soap opera, uh, soap opera that was being produced in Mexico. I didn't know anything about the background. I didn't know that actually Jose Martí translated this uh, famous uh, literary work in the 19th century. And from that moment on, I started applying to different uh, programs that provided support to uh, non-traditional students. And that's how I got into the Magnair Scholars Program. That was one of them. And then eventually I was able to take uh, advantage of several programs through the CSU system that uh, provide mentorship and guidance to uh, minority of uh, low-income students in California. And that uh, opened so many opportunities for me. I was able to be, be part of the Research Summer Institute at UC Berkeley. And from that moment on, I decided to apply to grad school, uh, I mean, to a doctoral program, and I was very, again, very fortunate to uh, to get accepted in the Spanish uh, program at uh, the University of California, Davis, where I continue to receive wonderful mentorship uh, by many uh, experts in the field of uh, Cuban studies, uh, you know, under Emilio Vejel, and also uh, um, Mexican studies with uh, Robert Irwin um, in now I uh, just I'm let a me l let me interrupt yes. you really briefly just to let people know that this the program the Spanish program University of California at Davis is one of if not the premier uh, Spanish program in the United States it's a um, it's a tremendous program and and anybody who gets accepted to and comes out of that program um, has a amazing preparation in in that field so um, that's really something to be proud of uh, I, I agree a hundred percent definitely it was a it was an experience I think that uh, changed my entire life uh, and now that I'm a professor here assistant professor here at the University of Northern Colorado I constantly reflect on those experiences and the amount of support that I received through my years as a doctoral program, but also early on as an undergrad. And definitely San Jose State was a, a, crucial, uh, a, a crucial moment, a crucial experience that allowed me to see that I could become a professor. Uh, and that's, that's a tremendous, a tremendous uh, inspiration and just the fact that you can believe in becoming a professor, uh, especially for someone, someone like me that didn't know anything about the profession, didn't know anything about what it what it requires, you know, to, to be done to become a professor. Uh, it, and now that I'm able to do that with other students as a professor, it's 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 a wonderful feeling and, and experience uh, being able to do that. So, so tell us a little bit then about this um, about 
Helen Hunt Jackson in this novel, Ramona, we, uh, which is also, like you mentioned, it's super famous right now as a, um, as a novella um, on TV in Mexico and in, throughout Latin America. Um, but it's, it's particularly tied to California in the, the, the pre-statehood times in, in California. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? And, and what, is, uh, what is so interesting about this novel? Well, one of the main things that uh, as I was completing my doctoral studies at UC Davis, I, I knew that Ramona had a wonderful story to tell. Who was Helen Hen Jackson? Uh, as I was uh, describing early, uh, earlier about my connection between Jose Martin and Helen Hen Jackson, that bridge between Latin America and the United States was really unknown. And when I was exposed to it, and when I started learning more about it, I want to learn more about what Helen Hen Jackson was all about. And in the 19th century, she became a, a prolific, we know she was a prolific author, prolific poet and writer, but more importantly, she became a very important activist on behalf of Native Americans in the 19th century. She was one of those figures who advocated for an, 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 a reform, specifically in the way that U.S. government dealt with Native American populations when it came down to treaty rights and also uh, land and ownership. So, uh, Early, uh, early on, uh, Ramona uh, was a product of an entire campaign on behalf of Native Americans. And uh, in order for us to understand a little bit more about Helen Hen Jackson and why she got so uh, moved to uh, speak with and on behalf of Native Americans, uh, it's, I think it's, it's very, uh, it will be very relevant for us to revisit a little bit of you know, what it was for her to grow up in the 19th century as a woman. Uh, number one, um, she was uh, uh, she was born in the East Coast, right, Massachusetts, Amherst, uh, Amherst, um, uh, uh, Massachusetts, and uh, she was the daughter of a, a college professor in foreign languages and also philosophy. These uh, early background allowed her to have uh, access to literary circles on on the east in the East Coast. And that was a very good experience for her because early on she started to uh, become more involved in poetry. She started to become more uh, passionate about writing. Uh, nonetheless, she never she never aligned to any of the main causes or movements of the 19th century, such as suffrage, uh, the abolitionist movement, or slavery movement. It was later on in the 19th century when she f finally uh, decided to to talk or speak on behalf of the issues that were affecting Native Americans. And all that happened in 1879. This is the time where uh, uh, Standing Bear, Standing Bear uh, chief of the Ponca tribe, arrives to uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Helen Hen Jackson is able to attend one of the lectures in which this uh, Native American leader is, is talking about the mistreatment and the forced uh, removal of the Ponca tribes and the tremendous, uh, the tremendous debts that these uh, events caused to his, to his community and his people. And that's something that impressed uh, Helen Hen Jackson, something that really moved her to do something about it. And for the first time, 
as she narrates and shares in a lot of her letters, this is the moment when she felt that her work, uh, her uh, literary skills needed to speak on behalf and with Native Americans at that particular time in the 19th century. And that's how her entire journey and how Ramona, I think that we can see how it was conceived through this activism and this passion to speak on behalf of those who are being mistreated, not just by uh, the U.S. government when we came down to uh, treaties signed be between uh, U.S. government, different uh, Native American groups, but also how society was treating uh, Native Americans around that time. Thanks. That's that's very interesting. Um, and then she... She eventually came out to California. Is that correct? How did she start getting involved with, with California Native people and advocating for them? Well, at that time, once she witnessed this uh, uh, testimony by standing there, she started to figure out, she started to think about different strategies to reach out the American public. So one of the first things that she started to do is to study the different treaties signed between US, the U.S. government and different tribes in the United States. Out of these, uh, you know, this very meticulously uh, meticulous work, uh, she published uh, in 1880, a century of this uh, 1881. I'm sorry, a century of dishonor, uh, which basically is a critique of all the uh, failures and, and lies that the U.S. government unfortunately told Native Americans and how. Native Americans were not only just displaced from their land, marginalized in many in many other cases, uh, brutally brutally uh, murdered uh, in these conflicts with the U.S. government. Uh, she was very hopeful that this was going to be a, a work that was going to move the consciousness of politicians, but unfortunately, that was not the case. She was very disappointed after uh, not having a very strong reaction from specifically politicians, about this situation that she considered to be affecting Native Americans even, even, even then. Uh, from that moment on, she decides, to, uh, she decides to go to Southern California to write a series of articles. And during this particular time, she is, uh, she is uh, learning about the mission, mission Indians and how they have been uh, affected by the secularization of missions. Uh, I mean, the effects of the secular secularization of missions in 1833, and then the effects of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo after the Mexican-American War. Uh, this is a moment for her to start thinking about how important it was for her to create or craft a report to uh, communicate this to the U.S. government. Um, and also, uh, part of this work or out of this, this particular moment, she starts uh, envisioning the production of a literary work that could actually reach out to more uh, Americans and more Americans be able to understand what has been the struggle or the plight of Native Americans, not just in the East Coast, but also in the West Coast, right? So... This is something that emerges around this uh, trip that she takes uh, on to California. Uh, during this particular time as well, once she's there and sending letters to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, 
she gets appointed to be uh, the one who takes care of articulating this report on how these uh, mission Indians have been affected by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and, and how they have been basically displaced, uh, slaughtered by the Anglo settlers that were arriving to California around that time. And this report of 56 pages, she makes recommendations uh, to the U.S. government in ways how to deal with this, uh, you know, this serial, this serial of abuses that are affecting Native Americans in in California. Um, again, she was very hopeful that this was going to generate uh, a good response from by politicians, and politicians was going to try to get involved and do something to uh, protect. Uh, uh, Indian uh, mission Indians uh, in California, but that does not produce what she was expecting. And again, she felt that her efforts needed to take a different route. And that's how she started thinking that literature perhaps was going to be the best way, not only to convince politicians, but also convince the American public that there was something going on that needed to be stopped. And in one uh, particular uh, letter, she even compares her work as Harry Richard Stove's Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that's how a lot of people and scholars uh, always refer to Ramona as the Uncle Tom's Cabin of uh, Native Americans in the United States. It's interesting to see how um, art or uh, literature at this point has can have much more of an impact than you know, producing a report or, or trying to, to speak uh, based on uh, analysis of facts, because in the end of the day, what, what do people remember? What has greatest impact? But it's, it's this novel as opposed to these uh, reports that she, that she writes. So tell us a little bit about the novel Ramona and how it, how it was conceived and then how it was received. Well, Ramona, it's an interesting experiment by Helen Hunt Jackson because what she does is that she intertwines her report on the conditions that Mission Indians are facing in California and also uh, her own literary imagination. So when you combine the, the two, uh, that's what you actually uh, you can you can actually say that that is Ramona. Unfortunately, not all of all, all readers in the United States knew about that, and a lot of them took it as being actually uh, at 100% or legit uh, documentation of characters and uh, and, uh, and and cases of uh, abuses uh, perpetrated against Native Americans. Although there are a lot of them where we can trace and we have historical. Uh, documents to actually see where Jackson extracted that information to incorporate to her uh, novel. Uh, it's not the same thing. Uh, Ramona, I mean, Ramona was a fictional character. It did not exist. It was really a creation of Helen Hen Jackson. Nonetheless, for many of the readers in the 19th century, uh, they became fixated with this particular character that there were a lot of people who travel to California to actually look for the real Ramona. Uh, this, of course, will just was going to generate a tremendous amount of tourism, right? And then also we see the expansion of the 
of the railroad in California. So it's kind of like a combination of people having this curiosity about the characters and the places described in, in the novel, and also having now the transportation to visit California and check out all these different places uh, that were described in the novel. Uh, the truth is that Helena Jackson, when she became uh, really uh, convinced that it was necessary to fictionalize the plight of Native Americans as a way of reaching to more, more readers, uh, I don't think that she took into consideration the danger of doing that. And she had a good, good spirit. She had a good intention of really uh, getting people more curious or interested in the plight of Native Americans, not necessarily the characters that were describing her novel. But unfortunately, the second was what actually ended up happening. Uh, her novel, of course, has two characters that are well-known in the history of California. And as we know, Ramona is the, the uh, uh, most important uh, heroine of California. Uh, if we go and look at the records and the 300-something editions that have been published uh, uh, of Ramona, and the fact that Ramona has never been out of, out of print, it tells us about these popularity amongst readers every time that they, they know or they read about this story. Um, but Ramona, and, and the plot of Ramona, it's about the romance or the love story of Alessandro, who is a, a Native American in Southern California, and Ramona, who is of a mixed uh, cultural and racial background, half Native American, half Scottish. Uh, Ramona does not know that she is a mestiza, what we will call mestiza in Latin America, right? Sharing this dual background of indigenous and European background. But in, as the plot of the novel, uh, as the plot of the novel develops, she finds out that she is Native American and that somehow attracts her even more to Alessandro. And that's how they uh, fall in love and eventually decide to escape because they know that in California, uh, this union of different races are banned, and it's impossible for them to really showcase, uh, show their love or love each other under these type of, uh, 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 you know, this type of uh, 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 cultural norms. So they decide to escape, and in this process, in trying to find a home where they can raise their family, they realize that they're being harassed by Anglo settlers who are constantly chasing them off their lands and at the end uh alessandro goes insane ends up being assassinated by an angle settler who accused him of stealing a horse ramona is uh completely you know desperate destroyed by this uh tragedy that ends up going uh marrying you know remarrying uh her uh half brother and at this point, we don't know, but at the end, we know that there's no, there's no, uh, uh, there's really no, uh, they're not, uh, they're not uh, uh, connected in, um, in, uh, at all because Ramona was, was actually part of, a, uh, it was a daughter of a Native American woman had no connection with his family. She was adopted. So this is, uh, it adds another dimension to this plot, but complication. But at the end of the novel, uh, Ramona and her half-brother, uh, 
end up marrying and leaving uh, for Mexico, right? And the message is like, in California, 19th century, it's impossible to accept people of different racial backgrounds, uh, you know, and that's how it, it ends, ends up. And uh, of course, uh, as I was uh, describing earlier, these uh, plot just generated a tremendous interest uh, amongst different readers and uh, a lot of curiosity about finding out about the real Ramona, Alessandro, and also the, the places that are actually depicted as early California, right? The mission period. Uh, so many people were still trying to find that mission period that Ramona was describing, but that was not longer around, uh, you know, by the time that it was published in 18, 1885. Kind of makes me think of the people that go to Verona in Italy to see the house of uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? <clears throat> so that that sort of type of, of literary tourism where you're going to a real place hoping to encounter uh, the fictional characters or the, the traces of the fictional characters. And you mentioned that that is what sort of jumpstarts the whole interest in reviving the Spanish past of California or the, the Spanish past in, in quotes, you know, in California. While what's in, what's interesting to me is that the, the novel finishes with her and her husband going to Mexico, uh, basically, like you said, asserting that that uh, a mixed race couple like them couldn't couldn't thrive in the California of um, late nineteenth century. So, what you're saying then is that the that the message, the underlying message of the book, didn't quite the the plot, the characters, the um, the story really hit home and and continues to be a bestseller but that the underlying message didn't seem to uh, percolate down to the general populace. Is that right? That's, that's correct. Uh, this, is, uh, this, is another, this was another attempt, and uh, just wanted to make a quick correction. When she, the book was published in 1894, but she died in 1885. So for her like to see the effects of the book, uh, she started noticing that there were you know, crit critics, literary critics were praising the book. We're talking about how wonderful, you know, that the person behind the author, Helen Hunt Jackson, was such an amazing author. People should read it. Unfortunately, the main the main attention was really more behind the the literary crafting of the of the work uh, more than the plight of Native Americans, and that was something that really uh, disappointed uh, Helen Hunt Jackson. Uh, her main goal was not necessarily to create this masterpiece of or classic of, uh, of American literature, but more like generate these uh, uh, debate and bring attention to the issues that had been affecting Native Americans. Uh, and for her to see how readers were uh, in, 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 in masses heading to California to search for these places and for these characters and more than trying to advocate for better treatment of Native Americans by the U.S. government was clearly a, a great failure uh, in many ways. Uh, and there are several letters where she is very disappointed, very sad to see how her work is turning into a commercial machine, which actually ended up becoming 
not only the bestseller, but generating several adaptations in especially cinema. And, uh, and you know, we have uh, play, plays that were uh, uh, inspired by this uh, novel. Uh, but for her, that was not necessarily what she was hoping for. Uh, and many, many, uh, uh, many visitors that were coming to Southern California were going there specifically, not necessarily to advocate for Native Americans, but to to seek to seek for uh, uh, to seek all these places that were describing her novel, uh, and that also generated an economic boom in Southern California, uh, specifically in these areas where people could uh, find signs uh, claiming to be the place that Helen Jackson was describing in her novel, uh, but there was really no mention of how Native Americans continued to be marginalized and, and, and oppressed by this new era of commercialism in California. Um, but in having also, we also had to mention the Mexican period. Uh, the Mexican period, uh, it is uh, really put up in the background of this novel. And it's really, uh, the more that, the, the background that is really more emphasizes the Spanish, the Spanish background, as you were saying, this also generated early in the, in the 20th century, this, uh, a romanticization of the Spanish era, right? Specifically, the mission, the mission system. Uh, so there's really no critique of the mission system in Helen and Jackson. Uh, in many ways, she probably had a, she didn't have a lot of information, or she didn't do a lot of research in terms of, you know, really understanding the mission system. The pros and cons of the mission system, you don't see that in her in her work and even report. Uh, and that's also generates some debates amongst the scholars of how well this was a representation of the struggles of Native Americans and how much of the Native American voice is actually reflected in Helen Jackson's Ramona. But for the 19th century, there's no doubt that Helen Jackson was uh, a leading activist, someone who's really challenging the spaces that were normally controlled by men in terms of po politics. She is someone who was actually infiltrating those spaces to create a voice for women in the United States, to a certain degree, she's a proto-feminist in the 19th century, uh, and also how she aligns her struggle as a woman with Native American rights, so which I think it's also very uh, relevant to recognize that. So then uh, tell us a little bit more then about um, Helen Hunt Jackson and the legacy that she and her works have beyond just California, beyond just uh, people interested in her novel and, and uh, the Spanish-Mexican mission period, um, because I know that you really work on Helen Hunt Jackson's legacy throughout Latin America, especially through um, the figure of Jose Martin. Well, this is, I think this is the, uh, uh, this is the very, uh, very uh, essential a essential connection between Helen Jackson and uh, one of the most famous prolific figures in Latin America. I mean, uh, Jose Marti, upon arriving to uh, to the United States uh, and specifically New York, he uh, in the 19th century, he is uh, very, very. Uh, he admired uh, Helen Jackson's work. Because he considered that Helen Jackson was doing something that none, uh, not other literary figure in the United States 
was daring to do, and that was to challenge the treatment of Native Americans. And that for, for Jose Mati was something very uh, significant and valuable. Uh, he also recognized that Helen H. Jackson was a talented writer and author. And in fact, he actually translated uh, other, other, uh, you know, other poems uh, uh, by, by Helen H. Jackson. But in terms of Ramona, Ramona spoke directly to Jose Mati after spending some time in Mexico in exile. Uh, he learned a lot about the struggles of um, indigenous peoples in Mexico. So when he arrives to the United States, and as we we know in many of his works, uh, Native American indigenous community or indigenous communities uh, have an important or have a central part in his uh, political, cultural, socioeconomic project for the Americas. Can you give us a little bit of background on Jose Martí, who he is, and and his uh, significance? Definitely, Jose Martí is. Uh, of uh, the Cuban, the, the 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 most important Cuban hero, uh, patriot. Uh, he was a cultural criti- uh, critic, critic, uh, re- renowned literary figure, uh, political figure, organizer, activist uh, in the nineteenth century. Given his uh, 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 political uh, political stand against uh, Spain's uh, colonial project in Cuba. He leaves, or he's actually, uh, he has to exile in uh, different different countries. Uh, one point uh, he is in Europe. At uh, one point he arrives in Mexico, and then eventually he makes it to uh, uh, to New York, on uh, the East Coast, and that's where a lot of his literary work uh, begins. In the sense that. His reflections of over Latin America, but also over uh, they, what's happening in the United States, in, in many ways are intertwined or connected, and that's how his uh, vision of uh, Nuestra America, in many ways, uh, is born. Uh, his famous essay is actually published there in uh, New York, and then uh, it also published in other newspapers. In, in Latin America, so it's, he's a very interesting figure because he's not just a he's not just an author. He's someone who's very involved in politics. Uh, he's very involved in um, uh, as a as a correspondent for other not Latin American newspapers. He is reporting about what's happening in the United States, but also reflecting on the things that are uh, happening in Latin America. So when he comes across Helen H. Jackson, he can't stop thinking about the effects or the impact of the Mexican-American War in of 1848. And that is a crucial period for him. As he's reading this novel, uh, Helen H. Jackson's Ramona, he realizes that Mexico needs to have a copy of this book. He needs to do something to disseminate the the book or translate this book in Mexico. Uh, so that's, he makes this strong commitment or he, of translating it and making sure that the book is actually uh, published and disseminated also in Mexico. Well, the book was published in New York. Several copies of this book arrived to Mexico. And the idea was to, uh, was to 
warn uh, Mexicans of the uh, emergence of the United States as, a, as an imperial power. In other words, the war between Mexico and the United States and what took place that, after that was not necessarily over. For Jose Martí, Mexico, especially its, border, its northern territories, were in tremendous danger of another war. And this war, again, was going to be justified uh, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, oh, this war was going to be a, 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 a war that was going to be fabricated again against Mexico so they can there could be a, a, a takeover of those territories that were not as uh, densely populated as this rest part of the, 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 the rest of Mexico. So Martí is aware of the problems that are affecting the border, even though he never traveled to the border. Uh, but he's constantly following uh, the events that are developing there, the different uh, consp not conspiracies by filibusters who want actually to fabricate a war to uh, take over the northern territories of Mexico. And this is something that frightens Jose Martí. And that is the moment where he starts to realize that Perhaps Ramona has not just a, has not just a, does not have just a message about, or the message behind Ramona is not just about Native American rights in in in, in the United States, but also how this plot could apply to the situation that not only Mexico but even Cuba could potentially face in these, uh, you know, at the end of the 19th century when the United States is becoming a very powerful power and is trying to is trying to really seek for an opportunity to uh, annex more territories uh, to its uh, to its country. Sorry, you you made me think of the whole story of the the filibusters. This whole um, series of American adventurers who would go down to Latin America in the mid late nineteenth centuries and try and create revolutions and try and um, establish their own uh, governments in these places. I, I know, you know, the famous one is William Walker, but the, it, it took place also in Baja, California and other places. It's, it's a chapter of U.S. and Latin American history that very few of us know about, but Marti was very keen on alerting people too. Most definitely. I think that, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a chapter of U.S. Mexico history that not a lot of people are aware of. But after uh, after the Mexican Mexican American War and also the Civil War, there's this uh, uh, a strong sentiment to continue annexing more territories or taking these uh, these uh, political projects outside the United States. And like you were mentioning, a case of Nicaragua, uh, and William uh, Walker is a perfect example of that. But there are other uh, other campaigns that are being uh, organized uh, in several parts of the United States, especially very close to the border, to the border, U.S.-Mexico border. And it's just fascinating how Martí is very vigilant of what is happening in the border and is trying to make sure that Mexican authorities are aware of those efforts that if they're very successful, this could generate a second war 
against the United States and in many ways justify the intervention or the military intervention of, 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 of the United States in, again, in Mexico. But it also was, uh, it was a, a great concern of Jose Marti when it came down to Cuba that in this effort for, uh, to fight against Spain and independence of Cuba, this could bring U.S. troops to Cuba and eventually take away the right of, of Cuban people to create their own government, which ironically we see it with the, the Spanish-Cuban-American War in 1898. Right, that in many ways, Jose Martí was foreseeing some of this stuff uh, when it comes out to foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. So, what is um, what ultimately then is the legacy of Jackson's work through uh, the work of Jose Martí throughout the the continent, throughout the hemisphere? What would you say um, was ultimately the impact of of all this? I think that in many ways, although Helen Jackson's work is not perfect, there are a lot of things that obviously in the 21st century we can revisit and be critical about it. Uh, but what there is no doubt about it is that Helen Jackson's uh, initiative or campaign to, to advocate for uh, the very treatment of Native Americans uh, in the 19th century, it is very unique. And it's, it is something that we need to admire for somebody to have the courage to stand up against the policies of the U.S. government as a woman. Uh, it's, it's something remarkable because rather than walking away from it and maybe not uh, getting involved at all, she decided to do something that it was very difficult for any, for any woman in the 19th century, uh, to write letters to politicians and criticize their their uh, lack of engagement or lack of intervention in a situation that was definitely uh, killing uh, uh, many, many Native Americans around the 19th century. So there's a, an aspect of uh, human rights uh, uh, activism early in the 19th century. So when we think about, for example, uh, a... Uh, Bartolomé de las Casas, for example, uh, is an early example of uh, somebody who who dared to to say something about the situation of Native Americans. We know there's a lot of debate about how those actions led to other uh, bigger problems, but I think that many of them were trying to do something something good. At least they were trying to. They 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 felt that they needed to speak out on behalf of of uh, communities that did not have the platform that they had to uh, denounce their, their abuses that are being uh, committed against them. Uh, so I think that I always think that Helen Jackson uh, was in many ways this uh, human rights activist early on in the 19th century. It wasn't perfect, but at least the effort and uh, the intentions of advocating for uh, a better treatment for a better, uh, better, uh, a better treatment and 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 more rights for uh, Native Americans, it, it was really there. Uh, in the case of Jose Marti, I think that Jose Marti was also inspired by these actions uh, of Helen Jackson's. Jose Marti already had another experience, you know, visiting countries like Guatemala and Mexico, so he he had an experience, or at least was aware of. The Native, the Native American or indigenous uh, experience in Latin America, uh, and it also was a humanist. You know, these are 
These are figures. I think that's what Jose Martin finds in Helen Jackson. These are two uh, uh, authors, but more than authors, these are humanists who are, are thinking about how human beings should be treated in the 19th century. And if there's anything that we can see in Ramona is the respect for that human dignity. That is something that both authors, in my opinion, value. Um, and, and it's something that can definitely, you know, we can apply to the 21st century that, you know, despite the fact that we're going through this uh, crisis as we speak, what is going to happen after we go back to normality? Uh, this is, I think, a moment for us to reflect and to reconnect with our humanity and the way we treat each other. I think that's something very important to, uh, to revisit. And I think Ramona, rereading Ramona, the message at the end, uh, more than, and than what happened in the 19th century and early 20th century of, of readers uh, being obsessed with the characters, it's really more about how we treat each other as human beings and the importance of you know, respect and dignity that every human being, human, human being has and or duty to advocate for that, to defend that, uh, no matter where, we, where we're coming from and no matter what kind of platform we have to disseminate that message. Yeah, I think very much so. Um, when, we, when we look back at this time that we're in, um, this very strange time, I hope that we will be able to, to come and say that I came out of this, um, that we collectively came out of this better than we went into it. And part of that is, is taking the time to read, listen to those people who, who help us understand the importance of human dignity and how to defend it, how to, to respect it and how to, to make sure that it's always the, the highest um, value that we have. So what are you working on now? What can, I know you just um, published a, uh, an edition of uh, Marti's uh, translation of Ramona. And um, if, uh, our listeners are Spanish speakers. This is a great opportunity to, to get a hold of that. Um, and uh, are there other that and other things that you're working on right now? Uh, yes, uh well, thank you for, uh, for mentioning that critical edition of that uh, translation of uh, Jose Mati. Uh, what I think is fascinating about that work, now that I can reflect on it, is that that uh, translation was originally published in 1888, and there hasn't been a critical edition uh, made out of it. And we were the first one. Uh, one uh, I want to thank my, my colleague, Dr. M. Fountain, who actually uh, also... An, a Marty expert um, who, as a mentor, also introduced me to this work early on as an undergrad. Uh, but then we were able to produce together, collaborate uh, in this uh, wonderful uh, critical edition. And our, our goal was to really showcase that this edition is very valuable for, uh, for us to understand um, you know the 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 connection between the U U S and Mexico. That was that was something that we thought it was very important for us to highlight that that the presence also of Latinos in the United States and the many struggles that derive after you know derive from the the Mexican American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, but more importantly, is uh, I think that the work highlights how this translation uh and has been 
I mean, was reimagined by Jose Martí in many ways. Uh, yes, it is a translation, but it's not just translating just content, but it's what he used to call transpensar or to think about the cultural setting in which you are disseminating this original literary work. And that's what he does in his, uh, his translation. He uh, decides to make uh, difficult decisions as a translator, but nonetheless, I think they work perfectly. And they really present to us a different Ramona. Uh, it's, 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 uh, and I know you as a translator perhaps have has had that experience. So how do you say something and, and how do you keep the original content or original cultural content the same uh, in another language, right? Uh, but for him, I think that he makes some uh, changes, but they work perfectly. Uh, they're, they're very accurate. And when the reader or the Spanish-speaking Spanish reader is actually reading this Ramona that he translated, this uh, original work, I think it's, it's, it, it, it becomes something else. It becomes something, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to take away any merit from um, Helen Jackson. I think that the original work uh, for this period of time, 19th century, is experimenting and is very creative. The reason why you have many readers, you know, responding to it, uh, it it's a clearly example of, of, you know, her, the quality of work that she was able to produce. But I think that Jose Martí's translation takes it to another level, especially for uh, Latin American readers. Uh, it adds something else to it. And I think that in our critical edition, we're, we're able to highlight that and guide the reader to uh, value and appreciate Jose Martí's work uh, on, on Ramona and also Jose Martí's perspective on what he's reflecting uh, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, currently, part of my, my own research is uh, working on Ramona, but I wanted to follow the traces of his literary work in the 20th century. And as I mentioned early on in the podcast about Ramona was uh, actually has several cinematic adaptations. Uh, many of them, uh, I mean, we have two of them during the, have three of them during the silent period of cinema, U.S. cinema. Uh, one of them in 1928 with the famous and renowned actress Dolores del Rio, Lolita del Rio. Uh, one of the perhaps the most popular, uh, we can debate that whether that was, uh, 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 that if she was the most popular uh, actress, but I, I will probably say she was around the, the uh, 20th century and, um, and uh, the most important Latina in cinema uh, during that period, particular time in the, in the 20th century. And what I do is I wanted to follow this, uh, the ramifications or cultural ramifications of Ramona, of Helen Jackson's Ramona, through the lens of Latinos and Mexican uh, viewers. That was my, my purpose. I realized that it was important to bring visibility to this uh, sector of the population who actually learned, dreamt about Ramona, uh, just like the Anglo-American viewers who were actually to see uh, some of these films or were actually to see some of the uh, uh, some of the plays that were created 
uh, or inspired by Helen Jackson's novel. And um, that's has uh, a project that I hope to publish this year and, uh, and bring, again, my contribution is to showcase how Latinos and, and, and Mexican pub publics or audiences in the 20th century received and reacted, reacted and also resignified the meaning of Ramona based on the periods where they were coming from. Well, well, I'll be looking forward to that because I know that that Ramona has had a uh, vast echo in the film world, the television world, and especially throughout Latin America. So I really look forward to that uh, upcoming work of yours. Jonathan, I want to thank you for spending the time um, to, to share with us your knowledge of this uh, really important novel, this really important author, and and her connection to another important uh, literary figure, literary and political historical figure, Jose Marti. And I think it helps us to understand better the, the real and ongoing connection that uh, California has with Mexico, with, with broader Latin America, and that the, um, the urgency of uh, continuing to to struggle for the protection of human dignity is is something that that really never goes away and that we see that unites us between people of the past and the present. So I want to thank you so much and I really wish you the best for the rest of this rest of this semester. Hopefully we're going to come out of this sooner rather than later and be able to get back to our our normal lives better than we were when we started. So Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity, and uh, and I look 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 for, forward to collaborate maybe in the future with another podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. I really want to thank Jonathan for his insights about this important novel and its author, and for helping us to have a broader perspective on it, in particular a perspective that goes beyond just the state of California or the United States, but one that unites us to people in our whole hemisphere. I'm also thankful to Jonathan for helping us understand the impact a work of art can have much beyond the original intentions of its author and beyond its original geographic location, let's say, as is the case of Ramona with Jose Marti. So I urge you to go out, get a copy of Ramona, and read this important novel for the history of California and for the history of our hemisphere. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at damian at californiafrontier.net.